people to do something crazy like that. <coughs> what causes people to do something outward, radical, crazy, generous, ridiculous, doesn't make sense. The only thing that causes people to do something like that. I mean, listen, I know the Schubert's well. I know in my own experience, I know the experience of a number of others who have adopted taking on someone else into your family when you've already got some systems and some structures in place and it's kind of a, kind of a pattern. It disrupts everything. I mean, it's like saying, hey, let's take on some inconvenience. What causes people to do something crazy like that? The only thing that does is the heart of God to do three things. To seek, to find, and to rejoice. The only thing that causes people who know God, who have a relationship with Him, to do something radical for the cause of the kingdom is to do three things that we're going to see in the Scriptures today. To seek, to find, and to rejoice. We're going to jump into the Scriptures real quick here. And what we're going to see in this is that if our participation in the kingdom work of something radical and generous and ridiculous and crazy and stuff that doesn't make sense, that our participation in things like that that demonstrate the heart of God, those are the ways as people who love God, this side of heaven, as people who are saved by Christ, this side of heaven, those are the kinds of things that we have to do if we're going to experience the joy of participating in kingdom work. We have to seek and we have to find. When you seek and you find, you experience the joy of seeing God work in people's lives. You have your eyes opened to what He's trying to do in the world. I think a lot of us hold that process at bay. A lot of us think, listen, I'm not adequate for this. I don't have the resources for this. I'm not, you know, really all that flexible. Uh, I'm not ready to do this. We hold that at arm's length because we think, listen, I'm not worthy of that. I don't have the resources for that. I don't have the time for that. I got all these other responsibilities going on. Yes, yes. But people who know the experience, listen, who know the experience of having been adopted by God the Father, which is anyone who calls Him his, his or her Father. People who know that experience want to replicate the heart of God to seek and to find and to experience the joy in that process. It's something we hold at bay. It's something we hold at arm's length. It's something that's not easy. It's something that requires sacrifice. It's something that causes us to identify with the sacrificial love of God that came down in the person of Jesus and demonstrated that sacrifice on the cross to identify with that experience as people who follow Him. Lord, you're going to the cross. I'll go to the cross with you. I said at the beginning that this is an orphan story and we're not going to talk much about orphans or adoption. That's true. We're not. 
But let's jump into a story in the Scripture that Jesus uses to talk about these three things of seeking and finding and experiencing joy. Because it is an orphan story. And it's the story of all of us who know God as Father. All of us who are sons and daughters of God, who know the experience of having the gracious gift of His love given to us in ways that we couldn't possibly deserve. Listen, that's the Gospel. That's the Gospel. And you have to preach that Gospel to yourself day in and day out in order for you to understand that this gift that we have from God, we could never merit, and yet as Father, He extends His love and grace to us. And as a result, we want to seek and to find and to experience joy. Because listen, the crazy part is that nothing pleases God more than seeking and finding those who are lost. God has a joy about that. And I don't know about you, but, but I'm not going to wait till heaven to experience godly joy. I'm going to do everything that I possibly can this side of heaven to grab it up, to experience it, to have it be a part of my life. I don't want to hold that at arm's length. I want to say whatever you've got for me, Lord, that takes me to the cross, that requires me to sacrifice so that I can experience that joy that you have for me if I will seek and I will find. I want to be there. I want to do that. I want to follow. Take me with you. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke 15. Turn to Luke 15 for just a moment here. And we're going to uh, fly through these three parables. These are parables Jesus tells. The first two are short. The last one is long. What we're going to see in these parables is something that kind of unlocks for us, unlocks for us some of this reason why we hold off this process of seek, find, experience joy. We kind of hold that off. And we'll look at that in Luke 15 here and experience some of that and see why. For many of us, even though we know God as Father, even though we know Him as Father, we kind of hold that at arm's length and, and we don't want to participate in that process because we think sometimes that, that we're not ready, we're unworthy, we don't have the resources, we're not smart enough, we don't have the connections enough, we don't have money enough, etc. Listen, if you want to seek and find and experience the joy... God will provide everything you need for that process. And we see that here in these parables. Look at Luke 15. First two verses set the tone for the whole chapter. This is Luke speaking. Luke gives a lot of detail. First two are not lots of detail, but the third one is. But he sets all three up and sets the tone by saying this, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners, this is the riffraff, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Him is Jesus here because he was speaking. The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, the people who knew that they were saved and, and, and merited their salvation. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They grumbled at Jesus, saying this, This man receives sinners and eats with them. It's one thing to just kind of to be around tax collectors and sinners, to be around the sort of spiritual riffraff. It's a whole different thing to eat with them, to have fellowship with them, to, to experience some sort of relationship with them. And so Jesus was doing that, and these Pharisees and these scribes looked at Jesus and they said, listen, <laughs> you clearly don't get how this thing works. So let's keep reading. Let's set the tone for this. And that's why, verse 3, he tells them this parable. Luke sort of says it like they're grumbling, they're complaining, they're trying to get Jesus, you know, uh, to, to paint him in a bad light. And so Luke says, so Jesus shows them up and tells them this parable. It says this, verse 4, 
What man of you having a hundred sheep? He's talking to everybody, but he's also specifically talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. He's saying, what man of you having a hundred sheep, a hundred to be about a modest flock, 200 starts to be a lot, 25 to 50 is small. So this is a regular sized flock. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, now notice this, does not leave the 99 and go after the one. Principle of the Christian life. Seek, find joy. You have to seek. Seeking is not accidental. Seeking does not just happen. Seek is a direction. It's an intent. It's a way you go. It's something you plan. It's something you, you kind of put your life's resources around. But somehow we think in Christian life that, you know, experiencing the joy, experiencing the joy that God has for us is something that just, boom, it happens. No. It doesn't just happen. It happens because you seek and you find and then you experience joy. It says this. This is, this is representative of the heart of God. He leaves the 99. This is radical, crazy stuff. He leaves the 99 and then he says, he goes after the one. How many of us are in regular practice of leaving the 99 to go after one? How much of our effort and resources and time and energy in so, so many ways in the body of Christ are about sucking it inward so that I can feel good about what this is here? He leaves them, 99 of them, that he knows are cared for, and he goes after the one. This is the heart of God talking through these parables. Go after the 91 that is lost until he finds it. What one of you? At night when you count the sheep, which was a daily thing for these shepherds, at night when you count the sheep, you know you have a hundred and one of them is gone. What one of you would not go and find it? Seek diligently. It says this in contrast. Leave, go after. Leave, go after. Go after is not a passive word. Go after is an intent and a direction and a passion and place that moves toward that one to find it. And here's the result, verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. That is the, the found sheep. Rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends, calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. A couple of weeks ago, I think three weeks ago actually, I lost my wallet for a few days. And uh, I know that sounds like not a big deal. I mean, it's not like I lost one of my sheep. I just lost my wallet. But when I lost it, I thought, ugh, this is going to be so annoying because I'm going to have to make sure that the card knows that my debit card, that the, the bank knows my debit card is gone. I'm going to have to go find a new driver's license. I'm going to have to sign up for a new this. I'm going to have to wait for another this. This is going to take a whole day's worth of time for me to take care of and get new stuff for my wallet. It's kind of annoying, not a big deal. But when it was found, listen, when it was found, it wasn't just like I went, Oh, that's cool. <laughs> no, 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 no. When I found it, I thought, yes, my wallet. I mean, that's not really much of an exaggeration, honestly. I, I, I called Dogney, my wife, and I said, listen, I, I, I found it. It's here. Uh, it was found. I, I, I've got it. So I called her and I rejoiced in it. <sighs> Seek, find, rejoice. And this is the heart of God talking through these parables. 
He comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, Jesus kind of interprets this here, verse 7, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Heaven rejoices, the heart of God rejoices with repentant sinners coming to be a part of his family. Second parable, verse 8. He says, Or what woman having ten silver coins? This might be her dowry. This might be her whole uh, life savings in these ten coins. She's probably pretty poor. Ten silver coins. If she loses a coin, which woman, if she loses a coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently, if you're a note taker, a circler, uh, underline that part where it says seek diligently and then go back up there to verse 4 and and underline go after. There's a parallel there. It says something about the heart of God to diligently, to passionately, to intently, not by happenstance, but to seek. Seek is an active word. and expresses the heart of God to find lost souls. So Jesus says, What woman, if she loses one of her coins, does not seek diligently until she finds it? Verse 9. And when she is founded, here comes the joy, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, Jesus interprets it like he does the first parable. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I said early on, this is an adoption, an orphan story. This is where that comes into play here. Look at verses 11 and following. We're not going to do the whole rest of chapter 15, but I want you to see a few things that are parallels for us and that demonstrate that we have all been orphans. He said there was a man who had two sons, two sons, not three, not four, two. It's important so that we know how much of the estate he asks for here. Verse 12, the younger of the two sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Two sons. Oldest son gets double what all the younger sons get. Uh, the younger sons get traditionally. So that means that if there are two sons, the top, the top son, the older son gets two-thirds. The younger son gets one-third. So this younger son comes along and says to the father, Listen, listen, I don't even care if, if you die today or you die in 10 years. I just want what's coming to me. I want this from you. This is how I value you. This is what I want from you. So just give me my one-third of the estate. That's important. Another thing that's important to know here is that the estate of this father, it's all he has to take care of him in his old age. And so what he does next is a risk. Look at this. He divided his property between them. It doesn't just say the younger son. It says between them. This father, legally, traditionally, culturally at the time, has every right to say, you, you disrespectful, get out of here. You don't get a cent from me. Every right to do that. Every right to say that. In fact, there are traditions that go even beyond that in terms of the punishment for that. He has every right to do that, but he doesn't. He divides the estate between them, it says. Verse 13 Not many days later, in other words, it didn't take very long, 
the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. He's not an orphan by happenstance, by biology. He's an orphan on purpose. He chose it. And this is why this is an orphan story, and there's more to this that we'll continue to unpack here as we go along. This is why it's a story about those of us who have rebelled against God and chose to do that to orphan ourselves functionally, which is all of us. Which is all of us. So at some level, this story is the story for all of us. We've chosen. We've chosen the path of being an orphan. Of saying up to the Heavenly Father who has everything who has also every right to respond to our rebellion by saying, listen, I made you. You rebel against me. I'm done with you. But he doesn't. But he doesn't. And so this son leaves, he chooses his orphanhood. In verse 14 he says, when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be a need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he began to, and he began to, I'm sorry, uh, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Pigs were considered unclean. So to do this is, is like the lowest of the low. Verse 16, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This was the bottom of the barrel for him. Verse 17 is where the switch happens. It's where he understands, I'm, an, I'm spiritually an orphan. I got nowhere to go. I got nothing, nothing that's going to help me. And he comes to his senses. Verse 17 it says, But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, he knows, he knows that this father is a man of grace. He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He has a sense of what he's done. He realizes that he has rebelled against God and against his own father. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. If you're an underliner or a note taker, you may want to highlight that, underline that. Verse 19 there, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Son. We're calling this sermon Prodigal's Suspicion. Prodigal Suspicion Paralyzes. And here's why. There's a sense in which, for many of us, this understanding, this realizing the weight of our sin and rebellion against God can be something, obviously, that that turns us toward God, toward His grace and mercy, toward what only He can give us. But it's also very easy to get very fixated on your own sin, to become very inward and introspective about your own frailties and failings and your own sin before God and before others. It is very easy as a believer in Christ to listen to the lies of the world and the evil one and those around us who want to impose horizontal structures of merit-based relationships. It's really easy to experience the prodigal's suspicion and to say functionally to our Heavenly Father, 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. For a lot of us, the story practically ends there. And we struggle. We struggle with taking on this new identity of being a part of the family of God in a way which frees us from the sin and toward seeking, finding, and experiencing joy. You know why? Because what we do, what we do is we listen to lies of the evil one and the lies of each other, manipulative relationships around us, and we give ourselves to these merit-based relationships. I mean, listen, let's, let's be frank about this for a second. You like me often because of what I can do for you and vice versa. It's sort of a general social reciprocity that, that works that way in the world, right? I mean, like, if I wrong you, you will distrust me, and our relationship's going to have some issues there, and, and our friendship's not going to be what it could be or should be, and grace-based is not what's going to typify that. It's how we operate all the time. If we give ourselves to that faulty world, to that merit-based kind of expectation about one another, what we'll begin to do, what we'll begin to do is we'll begin to doubt the Father's love. We'll think, you know what, maybe, maybe this whole way God says it works doesn't work. We distrust Him. Let me say it this way. I got a church coming out of my ears. I got church coming out of my ears. From day one before I could even remember, I was a part of the family of God. I went to VBS, went to Sunday school. I brought my Bible. I memorized my verses. I got the gold star. We weren't just there every time the doors were open. We were the ones who opened the doors. And if there's one thing that I've learned through all of that time, it's the simple, profound, awesome truth that God loves me And he wants to have a relationship with me. If there's one thing I've learned through all of my years of being a part of the body of Christ and the church, it's that God loves me and wants to have a relationship with me. And if there's one thing I have struggled with more than anything else in my Christian life, it's that God loves me and he wants to have a relationship with me. The prodigal's suspicion looks looks at the amazing gift of God's perfect sinless life in the person of Jesus lived for us. And we think, that's hard for me to get to. I don't understand it. I like it. I want that. I know it's true. But but Lord, I struggle against living that out, of, of experiencing that, of giving myself to that kind of trust, that full trust that what you say is the case for me. And what we do is we have this suspicion about that. Because we impose, for example, there are lots of reasons, but, but we impose on a relationship with God, a merit-based system and structure that we have for one another sometimes. Is it, is it any wonder that sometimes people look at the body of Christ and they say, I, I don't want to be a part of that system. That merit-based, I'm okay, you're okay, if you look like I do, if you talk like I do, if you wear the shirts like I do, if you listen to the music that I do. I don't want to be a part of that merit-based system because I'll never live up. And you know what? In a sense, they're right. They won't. We can't either. So what we do is begin to doubt the Father's love. And the prodigal's suspicion for us keeps us from experiencing the joy He has for us. Because what we do, what we do, we spend our energies and our time and our emotions dealing with gaining merit for us. Tell me that's not how it works in a lot of churches. 
Tell me that's not how it works in a lot of your relationships. Tell me that's not how it works in some of your families. So what that does is that creates for us a system and a structure we can't live up to. A merit-based system that keeps us from seeking and finding and experiencing joy. You know why? Because we're too busy trying to save ourselves still. I'm too busy trying to live up to what you expect me to do and to be. You're too busy trying to live up to somebody else's expectations of what you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to look like, how you're supposed to talk. This is what a Christian does. Listen. Worry about the Father's grace-based love. Focus on that. Treasure that. Treasure that. And you will become like this father here who runs after a son who has rebelled against him. You will become someone who lives out the heart of God, who seeks and finds and experiences joy. Some of you go through this issue on a daily basis. And you think, why am I not experiencing this joy that I see? It's because you've given yourself you're giving yourself to purposes and structures and plans that don't bring grace-based relationships and love. Look at this in the next couple of verses here. We're in Luke 15, verse 20. This is right on the heels of the prodigal's suspicion, right on the heels of the prodigal doubting the love of the Father. Listen, he says, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Yet at the same time, he knows that there is grace available. And this is what the Father does. Is this what you do? Is this what I do? Is this how we seek? Look at this, verse 20. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. This is a father who seeks. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. No mention of, where, on the wor- where in the world have you been? How many of us wouldn't be saying that? Right off the bat. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, this is the status he gives to this son, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Let us eat and celebrate, he says. For this my son was dead and is alive again. Those are the stakes. Those were the stakes here. He was dead, and now he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Friends, if we became people who instead of focusing like the evil one wants us to, focusing on our our inability, our frailties, our failings, the ways in which we don't live up to expectations, our sin, if we... Stop fixating on that and we keep our eyes focused on the God whose heart is to seek and to save the lost. If we continue to become people who focus on that, we will experience the joy that we miss. Because the joy that we will experience is seeing God transform lives.
That's available in the kingdom. Not in the not yet, but in the now. Let's pray together.